You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. The Elements of Style by Strunk and White is one of the most popular usage guides of modern times. And one of the book's pieces of advice, omit needless words, may be the most memorable and repeated maxim. It's an example of its own command. It has no needless words. And it appeals to any teacher whose students pad their ideas with fluff to reach a required word count. Despite its simplicity, though, the maxim leaves us with one open question. What makes a word needless? Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. Stick around, because after we talk about the times when it's actually okay to be redundant, I'll talk about the oddball word laraping. When you're trying to figure out if a word is needless, one simple test is to ask whether the word adds meaning. And the answer can vary from sentence to sentence. Consider personally. At first, it seems to be redundant. Don't the following sentences mean the same thing? Personally, I want lasagna for dinner. And I want lasagna for dinner. Although it's true that both sentences mean the person wants lasagna, adding personally to the beginning acknowledges that other people are involved. With personally, it sounds like less of a demand, or it can even convey a sense of resentment or superiority. Personally, I want lasagna for dinner, but you know we always end up having what George wants. Personally, I never call mom before noon, but Edith seems to think it's fine. Would those sentences mean the same things without personally? Yes, but the writers would also sound less put upon and self-righteous without the word personally. Personally can also emphasize disagreement with an authority, and I have to do this, but I don't want to feeling. Personally, I believe the company should reimburse you for those cocktails you sent to Lady Gaga's table in Vegas at 3 a.m. It was clearly a business development opportunity, but Mr. Montaro disagrees. Reflexive pronouns such as myself, himself, and herself can also add emphasis in ways that seem redundant at first glance. Certainly the actions are the same in these sentences, but the emphasis is different. I baked the cake. And I baked the cake myself. The first sentence, I baked the cake, is a simple statement. Maybe the answer to a question. Maybe someone asked who baked the cake. The myself in the second sentence, I baked the cake myself, adds a different feeling. For example, it could convey a sense of accomplishment from a 10-year-old who had baked his first cake, or a sense of abandonment from someone who expected to bake the cake with a friend. A while ago, I was talking with some reporters from a local radio station, and they said they'd been debating whether it would be redundant to say that the unemployment rate remains unchanged at 4%. Remains and unchanged convey the same idea. 
You could say the unemployment rate remains at 4%, or the unemployment rate is unchanged at 4%. And they both mean the same thing. But the reporters had decided it was okay to use both words because together, remains and unchanged added emphasis, which is especially important in an audio program where people may miss a word or two. And I agree. It may be technically redundant, but it doesn't bother me at all. Social graces also play an often overlooked role in word choice and can be a justifiable reason to include unnecessary words. You didn't get the job is sufficient to convey your meaning, but adding a quote-unquote needless lead-in helps soften the blow. I'm just writing to let you know that you didn't get the job. Yes, it includes unnecessary words, but it sounds nicer. In some cases, words are technically redundant but serve a clarifying purpose. For example, chai means tea in Hindi, therefore chai tea technically means tea tea. In America, however, the word tea calls to mind simple black tea. In our culture, chai is a special kind of tea, and the word chai on the menu adds specificity. When chai was first introduced in America, customers probably wouldn't have known that it was tea if they just saw the word chai on the menu. So writing chai tea was a wise business choice. Today, now that most people are familiar with chai, you can make more of an argument that the word tea is redundant or unnecessary. Similarly, cider is technically juice pressed from apples, meaning that apple cider is redundant. But given that we now can buy blueberry cider, peach cider, and so on, apple cider makes it more clear what's in the bottle. Finally, dialects and regionalisms can also employ redundancy or wordiness, and fiction writers who want their characters to sound authentic embrace these quirks. For example, a character from Newfoundland may say, Me? I think we should have lasagna. And a grocer during the Depression may have insisted on being paid with cash money. Nonfiction writers should usually avoid those kinds of phrases, but they can make perfect sense for characters in fiction. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hey, it's Mignon. Do you need a new literary show to add to your podcast queue? Well, then you definitely want to check out Missing Pages, the chart-topping and Signal Award-winning podcast produced by The Podglomerate. Back for a brand new season, Missing Pages investigates the most pressing topics in the book world today, from the rise of Colleen Hoover and book bands across America to the world of ghostwriting. Not to mention host and acclaimed literary critic Beth Ann Patrick interviews some of the biggest names in the industry, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico and Publishers Weekly co-editorial director Jim Milliot. And as The Washington Post and The Guardian said, Missing Pages is a, quote, must listen. And I agree. So don't miss out. Follow Missing Pages today on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now.
Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart? Every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. A few weeks ago, I played a familect story from Melanie in Arizona, and I got so caught up in answering the question about her mom asking her if a boy at school gave her any house that I neglected to comment on the other story about the word larapin that her friend used to describe a good meal. Here's a refresher. I used to work with a person who had a familec for something that tasted so delicious it was beyond words. The word was larapin, like that cheesecake was larapin. I never knew how to spell it, but I always imagined it being L-A-R-I-P-I-N. So even though my family never adopted the word, I still find myself thinking of it when something is over-the-top delicious. Melanie had said she thought it was a made-up word, and I just assumed she was right. But after the voicemail went live on the podcast, a listener named Walter left a comment saying he'd heard the word over the years, and others followed suit. And as I looked into it more, I learned that it's regional. The Oxford English Dictionary has both larrup and larruping, spelled L-A-R-R-U-P and L-A-R-R-U-P-I-N-G. It's labeled as dialect and colloquial and was first recorded in the 1820s when it meant to beat, flog, or thrash, as in, your father will give you a fine larrapin if he comes home and there's that cow lost. It's similar to whopping or thumping. Etymologist Anatoly Liberman, who writes for the Oxford University Press blog, says that larrap is widely known in Britain. Interestingly, it then somehow made its way to the U.S., at least part of the U.S., where it started to be used the way Melanie's friend uses it, to describe delicious food. The earliest example in the Dictionary of American Regional English, better known as D.A.R.E., is from 1905, recorded in northwest Arkansas. Good, I've got something larrapin for you. D.A.R.E. has examples from other regions, such as California and Colorado, but says it's especially concentrated in Texas, Oklahoma, and the West Midland region. Here's another example from 1942, in which Texas writer George Sessions Perry is explaining the meaning. Quote, a tasty dish is a larrapin, which could have come from the use of the same word, meaning a beating, thus developing a connotation of superiority, unquote. It also kept its beating, thumping, or whopping meaning, too, though. 
One nickname for Lou Gehrig, a famous baseball player from the 1920s and 30s, was Larrapin Lou because of how hard he hit the ball. Nobody seems to know for sure where Larrap originally came from. The OED doesn't have an origin, and on his OUP blog, Liberman could only determine that it's related to other LR complex words, such as slurp, lurk, and lurch. It's a bit of an under-the-radar odd duck, too, in that some dictionaries only have the beating meaning, and others only have the exceedingly good food meaning. But I can tell you that your friend didn't make it up, and when you see something over-the-top delicious and think of the word larruping, you aren't alone. Thanks again for the question, Melanie, and thanks to Walter for making sure this one didn't fall through the cracks. Finally, I have a new familect, and I'm pretty sure this one is original to this family. Hi, my name is Alex. I've got an example of familect. Um, my wife and I will sometimes eat um, like chicken and fries from the freezer, and at some point, one of us misheard the other one. And when we said one of us said, uh, "Do you want to have chicken and fries for dinner?" Uh, they heard it as. Do you want to have chicken surprise for dinner? Uh, and ever since then, chicken surprise has been shorthand for our quick uh, chicken tenders and fries uh, dinners. My wife and I have tried to make fish surprise as well, but I put my foot down about that one. Thank you, Alex. Chicken surprise sounds much more fun than chicken and fries. But I have to say, I'm with your wife on fish surprise, too. Why not call everything with fries a surprise? It sounds more fun. If you want to share the story of your familect, your family dialect, a word your family and only your family uses, call the voicemail line at 833214GIRL. It's in the show notes, and be sure to tell me the story behind your familect, because that's always the best part. Grammar Girl is a quick and dirty tips podcast. Thanks to audio engineer Nathan Sims, digital operations specialist Holly Hutchings, director of podcasts Brandon Getches, marketing assistant Cameron Lacey, marketing associate Davina Tomlin, and ad operations specialist Morgan Christensen, who's been a bridesmaid 16 times, which would be a bummer because of all the dresses, but is also amazing because it means you must have so many wonderful friends and family who love you. And I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. That's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries. So you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, 
every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.